you do not have a copy of your Sunday school lesson, you can grab it in the back. It's on those stands. Uh, today, um, we will be studying Puritan casuistry. You don't know what that is, neither did I until about a week ago. So, before we start, let's go over our shorter catechism question. This is question four. What is God? Derek Thomas would say this is the greatest definition that he's ever seen in existence of God. You almost get a sense that it's harder to find God, or is that just me? The re- it should be. I tell people often, the moment you really think you understand God, then you have become God. Uh, God is transcendent. We don't completely understand him. Even in the sense of we do understand him, it's not a full understanding of God. We never will. He is He is other. He is transcendent. So, with that said, what is God? The answer is, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Let's pray. Father, we praise you, Father, for you are good. You are spirit. You are infinite, eternal, unchangeable. In your being, your wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And Father, we praise you that you are all these things. We also thank you for condescending to us, revealing yourself to us so that we can know you. And Father, we pray that this lesson would help us know you more, would guide us in our lives as we deal with believers and we deal with unbelievers. Help us to be men and women who love your word and want to help others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Does anybody know who this picture is of? This is William Perkins. That's what he looked like. We're going to talk about him a lot, so I figure I put his picture up there for you. And uh, Puritan casuistry was something that was practiced and written about during the times of the Puritans through looking at different bibliographies and endnotes. I was already counting 20 different works of Puritan casuistry. So when I was going through the different lessons that I could choose from, I saw this and thought, I have no clue what this is. So I figured I would learn it and we'd all learn it together. Turn to page two. Here's a discussion question for you. Which is it? Do not answer a fool according to his folly or you yourself will be just like him. Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. Which is it? What are you supposed to do? This is the wisest man in all the scriptures next to Jesus, writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, telling us, answer not a fool according to his folly, or answer a fool according to folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. I believe that's the King James. That's how I remember it. What do you do? This is the practice of casuistry. How do you take your morals, how do you take your scripture and apply them to real world situations? And that's just the iceberg. It's much bigger than this. William Perkins wrote this, Isaiah 50, verse 4, The Lord God has given me a tongue of the learned, that I shall know how to minister a word in due time to him that is weary. In this text, then... There is set down one principal duty of Christ's prophetical office. There is a certain knowledge 
our doctrine revealed in the word of God, whereby the concerns of the weak may be rectified and pacified. William Perkins. Not only do they see casuistry as something to be practiced, taking your moral values and applying to life, it was deeper to the Puritans. There were people that were cut with shame because of their sin. There were people that had tender consciences because of situations here or there. And how do you apply the word of God like a surgeon, whether you are a minister, whether you're a mom or dad or uncle or you're a friend, how do you take that word and give them the assurance that, that Christ loves them and that, that they're okay so they can make it from point A to point B? This is really the concern of many of the Puritans. Now, one, I said casuistry confined. This is how it's pronounced in the books, casuistry. But there's a warning. As you, as you know, definitions morph. Listen to the Flintstones, right? You can't really say what they say anymore. But definitions morph. If you do a dictionary search, I think the Oxford Dictionary of casuistry, you're going to see it's almost like taking some false beliefs and applying them. It's like misapplying beliefs, and it's almost as you're being sneaky. But if you go to the Webster's Dictionary from 1826 or 1828, you're going to see that the Puritans had a different view. So, so the word has morphed into something different. So oftentimes when you're speaking with people, you have to define terms. Kazooistry was something good. Now it seems to be something negative. Look at A, the attempt to formulate universal ethics, rules, or standards that can be applied in specific situations in order to ensure moral behavior. Kazooistry, in other words, is the attempt to make general rules that can govern particular ethical issues. That is true, but remember the Puritans took it to the next level because they wanted to actually help the heart of a person. Which brings us to what kazooistry is not. It's really important where, where it was formulated. It is not the technique applied by the Jesuits for finding excuses for not doing what you ought to do. Meaning, you know the scripture very well. Jesuits knew it very, very well. That's not my neighbor. It never says in the scripture that I have to bake a piece of bread for that person to bring it to him. So I'm not doing it. Scripture never says directly that I need to do this. So therefore, I'm not doing it. Do you see how it could be used in a, in a wrong way? Because Scripture just doesn't give us a guideline for everything, so I don't have to do that. As a matter of fact, one, of course, is the passage of Scripture where God calls the people blind guides. The Pharisees, if you look on page 3, are described as obsessed with the minutia of the law and as engaged in a casuistry and mystification that produces burdensome and tiring interpretations. You know, this is the same question that's always asked. Who is my neighbor? <laughs> I don't have to help them. Who is my neighbor? We're called to help our neighbor. Who is my neighbor? What do I have to do? Scripture doesn't lay it out and tell me how to live my life. Therefore, I won't do anything. And this was the issue with Roman Catholicism. And this is Beaky and Jones. Roman was my addition. I like to separate the two because I am a Catholic, but I'm a universal, meaning there's one faith, one Lord, and one baptism. But Rome is not my headquarters, heaven is. Contrary to Roman Catholicism, the Reformers insisted that God does not forgive sinners through priestly and sacramental intervention, 
but through faith alone, by means of his Holy Spirit, that conviction necessitated abandoning the penitential system of the Roman Catholic Church that had been being used for centuries to provide Europe with the moral direction and discipline. So the one thing this code did of penitence within the Roman Catholic Church is people knew which sins were bad and which sins were just okay. Right? Because if you, you send a little bit, that's just a, you would go to the priest and it'd be a, a little punishment. You send real big, it may be a, you know, a venial sin and you had sins that you'd perish forever. They had a scale. Now we know some sins are more heinous than others, but we really clearly tell you that even the littlest of sins will cause you to go to hell forever. It says it in our confession, the scripture teaches it. They had a system, and they thought that system could help people on the straight and narrow. Here's the discussion question. How would you explain what a sacrament is to a six-year-old? What's the difference between Protestant sacraments and Roman Catholic sacraments? How would you explain it to a six-year-old? How do you explain it to a six-year-old? Special sign of God's grace. This is my special challenge to you. When you think of theological things, how are you going to explain it to a kid? Because if you can't explain it to a kid, I don't think you really grasp it. Some you can't. Like the Trinity, I get that, but you can tell a kid, it's unexplainable. Believe it. You know, sacraments are ways that God gives us grace, gives us Christ. He is giving it to us. The Roman Catholics have a bit of a different view of sacraments. Does anybody want to take a stab at this? They do. They just don't help you. They do give you salvation. See, when you take the Lord's Supper, this will not save you. It is Jesus that saves you. But this is what? A sign in the seal. It points you to Jesus, the great Savior. In the Roman Catholic Church, this actually saves you, it's a part of your salvation. When you take the Eucharist, it actually saves you. Of course, there's a sacrifice going on at the time. But look at the, look at the sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. Baptism saves you. Confirmation saves you. Eucharist saves you. Penance saves you. Anointing of the sick saves you. Holy order saves you. Matrimony saves you. That was the big deal like Pastor David talked about Henry VIII. Why was it such a big deal for him to get a divorce and, a, and an annulment? Because it gave you salvation. Now you're giving up on your salvation by getting an annulment. The reason this is so important to understand casuistry is because when you went and you got your salvation by confessing your sins, a part of your confession was now you need to do these works to make up for what you did. Possibly. If you see this picture... I don't know what movie this is from. I just Google search mobster with a 
with a with a priest. But it seems like every mobster movie, an Italian goes in and they I've killed a few people, and they're like, you need to do this and do this, right? And you write a check, right? So they always were getting an absolution for their great and mighty sins that they did. And there was penance, even from the smallest of sin to the greatest of sin. The priest waved a magic wand, said, you are forgiven, now you do these things. Just so you understand, this is the Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church, number 1422. Not year, it's number. Those who approach the sacrament of penance obtain pardon from God's mercy for the offense committed against him and are, at the same time, reconciled with the church, which they have wounded by their sins, and which by charity, by example, and by prayer labors for their conversion. Just continue. Continue on. Do some good things and to make your penance right. See, people wanted, just give me the rules, just give me what I need to do, make the Christian life easy. Christian life isn't easy. As a matter of fact, it's often difficult taking the scriptures and applying them sometimes to life. Now, what is casuistry? It is not a set of rules and regulations whereby you get to point A to point B and, and, and it gives you salvation. No, none of that. Uh, because penance was done away with in the Protestant mind, what rules and laws do you apply? Now, now Calvin Notice that when the Protestant church started to grow, that people started to become antinomian, meaning anti-law, do anything you want to do. So what did Calvin bring back? Church discipline, right? Some of you might have thought he went too far on sometimes, but he brought back church discipline. Yes. Yes. And, and I believe we have a, so my book said ka, casuistry, because I read it as casuistry. And I noticed we had that discussion on Wednesday night, but in my book, I have a ka, but it's a casuistry. You had ka. Okay. Well, for the record, was well, true, true. If we just had someone to give us a pronunciation vowel sound in the bottom of our letters like Hebrew to make it easy. We don't. But I'm using the old definition. With that said, let's go to page four. What is casuistry? It is moral theology on how to apply your conscience. Now, I believe Josh McKinney will be teaching about the conscience very soon, maybe in a three or four weeks. That is chapter 50, if I'm not mistaken, you chose. What we are doing is learning how to apply the conscience, 
how to apply the law of God upon our hearts into life. Kazooistry, or may best be understood, as a method of blazing trails through the ethical wilderness that too often separates theory from practice, code from conduct, and religion from morality. That is Merrill and William Perkins. This is Beaky and Jones. Their definition, kazooistry, kazooistry, is a practical or practice theology, training Christians to live uprightly, humbly, and gladly in the presence of God and every day in their lives. Here's some questions for you. Jim was angry at William. They were deacons in charge of the diaconate fund. William decided to use the rest of the diaconate funds for a missionary family that needed help with their school bus in Africa they used to pick up children with. Very good thing that William did. Very good thing. Spend the money. That's good. William did this unilaterally without Jim's knowledge. Oh, no. When William was confronted by Jim, William told Jim, we planned a meeting about dispersing the funds, but you never showed up. Jim said, my wife was sick, but William said, you seem to miss quite a bit of meetings because of sickness, which is absolutely true. William felt he could have handled it a little differently, probably shouldn't have been so snarky. So he approaches Jim before the Lord's Supper, and he apologizes and takes the wrong. Good Christian thing to do, right? But Jim refuses to talk to William. The communion plate is passed, and William refuses to take the Lord's Supper. Why? Because someone has aught with him. He meets with the session because there is a fault with his brother. What should the session say to William? He tried to do the right thing, so he take the Lord's Supper. So you're starting to see there is no scripture verse when we do have, have aught with our brother, but oftentimes you have to use and apply the principles of scripture to these situations. Let's look at Omar Shur O'Keefe. He lives in a Muslim country. Technically, the Quran says you shouldn't marry, but sometimes they follow the tradition of the Hadith of Muhammad. But anyway, he marries three women and has ten total children from all three wives. Omar comes to know Christ and he know God's plan for his life. He should only have one wife. What, what do you tell Omar to do? He's got three wives. Next. This is a Muslim country. It's completely legal. He's still in the country. Uh huh. It's not easy. Yes. Yes. Uh huh.
And I think there's television shows about it on TV now people watch. Multiple wives or whatever. Multiple wives at first sight. I don't know what it's called. But yeah. Yeah. Get a new, get another job. Is that what? Okay, yeah. <laughs> yes, sir, Pastor David. So we would consider a lawful marriage to be between one man and one woman. Right? Yes. So if someone was in a homosexual marriage, we would say they should legally divorce because marriage is not lawful to begin with. So would we also apply the same logic then to someone in a So as you see, okay, we got hands. John Carr. <laughs> now they have kids too. They have kids. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a lot of truth. So as you see, sometimes we live... In America and things are sometimes more cut and dry but they're not even as cut and dry as it used to be it's, it's difficult sometimes to apply truths of the scripture because not every situation is the same Rome sought to keep, keep rules and regulations for everything and the reality is the Protestants come and, and they said life is just not that way you have to live your life loving God with your mind, taking these principles and apply them to your heart and apply them to your life. There's a lot of other situations I could have wrote on here that are just as interesting, you could say, and, and hard to live with. The Puritans, look at F, were deeply concerned that pastors shepherd the flock of God with practical guidance and directions related to questions considering what God expected of his covenant people. People will come to pastors and ask these questions. I got a difficult situation. And some way, somehow, whether you're a pastor or a friend, you have to take the principles of God and apply them to their lives. That's the practice of casuistry. Look at, look at Roman numeral two. The beginnings of Puritan casuistry. The Puritans concurred with Calvin that communicate members of the church should be held accountable to biblical standards for their conduct. 
Remember, if there's no rules on how you should live, then you can live any way you want to live. <laughs> Where Calvin tried to bring back the third use of the law, which is in Scripture, but he made it very clear that you can please God by keeping his law and by doing what he wants you to do. And he understood that within the church, as Pastor David spoke of the keys, the only thing ministerial and declarative that the ministers of the church can do is withhold the Lord's Supper or remove you from the rolls. And if someone could care less, like wicked Esau about the promises of God, willing to even sell them just for a bowl of stew, there's nothing else we can do. You're probably not a believer anyway if you could care less about taking the Lord's Supper or being on the church rolls. But Calvin understood that. There needed to be some type of system or discipline system. And like I said, don't think discipline as you have to do this. Just, this is it. This is the only card the elders have is the Lord's Supper. This is it. The Lord's Supper and the church rolls. The only card we have. And people sometimes get mad when we play the only card we have, which is interesting. But how does Jesus apply casuistry on the Sermon on the Mount? Yes. Uh-huh. Oh, you, you, you never slept with a woman? So you never committed adultery? Jesus said what? Let me apply that law, right, to your heart. Even if you think of a, of a woman sinfully, you have, you have committed adultery. So Jesus takes the law and then applies it to your heart. How do the divines apply kazooistry in the catechisms? Yes, they do. All right, you know, they, they do. They, they give you the positive and the negative. These are things you shouldn't do, and these are things you should do. Right? That's all from that one law, and they're applying it to your lives. B, the problem was when applying wisdom, the cases were not so cut and dry. So gatherings were held for ministers where they could come and discuss cases to garner biblical wisdom. And when the minister could not decide the outcome, they sent the case to Cambridge University for the ruling. This is the, the Puritan model. Very Presbyterian. We don't understand what's going on, so you phone a friend. So the ministers would meet and they would say, I've got this difficult case. Which, believe it or not, it's the same verbiage we use on our elder board. Our session. We'll call someone, I got a difficult case. Because we understand that the church courts and we're like, we got a difficult case. We don't know how to rule. We don't know what to do. So we seek wisdom. Typically, we call men in their 60s and 70s. They have answers. It takes a long time to get to be in your 60s and 70s. So we listen to those men and they give us great wisdom. But sometimes you don't know what to do. Let me see which one of these. Yes, that was the exact, that's the same Cambridge. Let's go to D. And this is just real quickly. A pregnant wife has two children and comes home to her husband who was laid off because of the economy. 
The husband soon rekindles the passion for fishing and seeks to do it professionally. The problem is they have no money, so he borrows money against the equity of their home, uses credit to purchase a fishing boat and a new truck. This also, mean, this also means that he'll be gone three-fourths of the year, but assures the wife he will see the family as often as he can. He will find a church online during the tournaments. He promises to check in every day and will stay in online Bible studies and at the local church that the local church provides at least and provide a good living for the family. She files for divorce and the husband comes to the elders and goes, I need help. What do I do? So, <laughs> the amount of difficult cases that deal with divorce, I can't explain to you how many cases there are where sessions have to rule on divorce because the Bible never says you can divorce a man who gets a fishing boat and wants to be a professional fisherman the rest of his life. Is he abandoned the family? I mean, he, he does have a job. He just travels, right? He's got a traveling job. But the Lord's called him to fish. How can you be a fisherman if you can't fish a fish, right? No, it's, and I just made this up. But I've noticed that cases come up, and even there's a local church that I've received phone calls recently because there's a difficult case dealing with divorce because it's not the man has not abandoned. And that's what Paul meant by abandonment, like he's out of the home. You can shove whatever you want in there, but that's exactly what Paul means. But what Paul was doing was reading the law of God and, and make an application to it. And that's what we're called to do is make application to the law. Paul didn't contradict Jesus. Jesus said what? Divorce for adultery or death. He didn't say death, but those are the, the two reasons the, the marriage is over. And here comes Paul talking about abandonment. Did you contradict Jesus? Paul, no. Paul's reading Deuteronomy and Exodus like we are and making applications to it. So we have to use our brains. Kazooistry is what we do, bringing that to light. And we all do it. We just need to learn to do it well. Yes, sir, Pastor David. So that's a great question, by the way. If you want to know, let, let's just take, while we're on the topic, the most recent study report we have is a study report on abuse in the home. What is abuse? And they, oftentimes a spouse will come, whether it's a male or female, and claim, I have been abused. Well, they're looking to get a divorce, and oftentimes... You've got churches who says, no divorce at all. Well, the problem is you have now taken the only tool that a woman has, which is divorce, out of her hand. And you're to protect the female. You're to protect the male. That's what the law of God was for, is to always protect, because people were taking advantage of women in Deuteronomy. So the study report comes, and it helps the churches and aids them on how to deal with issues of a husband and a wife and abuse in the home. We're not experts, just so you know. We're also not police. We don't investigate, we do in a sense, but we're not the police, we're not a judge, we're, but we do have to listen to these cases 
So the study reports helps us and gives us some casuistry on how to apply the law of God in these cases, especially with abuse. And if you look through the PCA history, we have a litany of study reports that aids the elders and aids women and men as they do counseling. We believe in neuthetic in the sense of every Christian can counsel. Now, sometimes things are above your pay grade. Send it to a professional, just so you know that. But in the sense that someone comes to you, you can read a study report and get the application of the law of God. Yes, sir, Mr. Brown. Well, everything's a case-by-case basis. Yeah, we've paid for people in this congregation to reach out to others because it's above our pay grade. We, we, we support that. We, I believe, you know, people go to school and there are good Christian counselors out there who understand psychology much better than we do. So we feel comfortable as an elder board, as a session, that there are gifted women and men that can do that much better than we can. Now, what they, what they can't do though is withhold the supper. <laughs> and we don't, you know, so that, that's really, we have to eventually make a decision on who's right and who's wrong sometimes. That sounds terrible, but at the end of the day, that's what we have to do. But that's a good question. Let's go to Roman numeral three. William Perkins was the father of casuistry. He wrote more than any other Puritan. But what he started was a lot of writings dealing with how to apply God's law. Do you remember when mask mandate, look at number six, do you remember the mask mandate? Remember the government said you got to wear a mask if you're going to have service? That sounds, it feels like 20 years ago, but, but it happened here. We had people who were, no one's going to tell me to wear a mask. <laughs> we had people in the church that says, dude, the government told us to. We need to submit to them according to Romans 13. They're launching grenades at each other. And here comes the, they're, they're both telling the elders, tell us what to do, right? Do you understand how stressful that was for every session in the world, in America, from the Baptist to the Methodist, everybody was on the verge of church splits because people were disagreeing. And we all had to use casuistry. <laughs> Take the law of God and apply it. And by God's grace, this church didn't have a split at that time. We were praying against it. I was praying against the enemy. I became a Pentecostal a little. I was praying against the devil, right? I wanted him out. Because that was a perfect time for the devil to stir up things. But this is a science and art that we must live with from day to day. But see, it's also applied to the weak conscience. I don't know where it's said in here, but I'm going to share it. There are people 
who come to this church service who tell us, I can't take the Lord's Supper. Why? I just have too much sin. Or I did this, or I did that. Or it's been a bad week. That grieves the elders. It does. The, the Lord's Supper should be taken because it's Jesus's table. Like one requirement, you're a sinner, right? And you're a member of a church in good standing. But you got to be a sinner. And all of us are sinners together just asking God for bread. This is what we're doing. So it grieves us. So we have to take the scriptures. And this is where William Perkins really started to write about it because he felt so sorry for the people who had a tender conscience. And he wanted to apply the truth to their hearts. But you know, the flip side is this. There are sometimes we're like, ooh, I don't know if that person should be taking the Lord's Supper or not. Sword cuts both ways, right? There are people who you just want to shake and go, take the supper, Jesus died for you. And there's some people you're like, I wouldn't take that if I was you. <laughs> and casuistry is that art to help people with that tender conscience who, who believe they can't face God. And, and you may have to use it when you speak to someone because... How many times have you spoke to someone and they said, listen here, it's one thing to say there's an arrogant type of, ah, oh, I sin so much that's going to fall down on me when I walk into the church. Like, listen, those people are silly and need help. But there are some people who truly know how much they have sinned. And they need casuistry. They need you to take the scripture and apply it to their soul. And you need to find the scriptures and know the scriptures to do so. Um, Roman numeral three, there's just a lot of different people who wrote books um, throughout the years, as there's just some of them. Five, the fullness of Puritan casuistry. Uh, the Westminster Assembly, this is page six, 5A, the directory for the public worship of God, which is not in our uh, constitution. We do have it, but it's not binding they would give ministers a test on casuistry. They would make up things like I just did and say, how would you handle that? And if they couldn't handle it rightly, they couldn't preach. Sorry, we're not ordaining you. This is how serious the Puritans were at you applying the scripture to the soul. Now we do a little bit of that with our deacons exams and our elders exams. We give them, this happens, what do you do? It's all fine and dandy to know in your mind, but how do you apply that? Because if you can't apply it, then you don't really know it. And it means nothing. If we're just coming here to get fat in our mind and we're not applying this to our hearts and our lives, what are we really here for? Uh, the Anglicans got involved, page seven. There were some Anglicans that started writing about casuistry. There, it started to fade away. Isaac Watts and Jonathan Edwards were probably the last two to write quite a bit about it. Jonathan Edwards, I couldn't even put his word. There's just too many to name. He wrote so much. <laughs> and he, he liked to apply the truth. Flegenweisen, George Wilfred, right? They were the, probably the last two preachers that actually talked about it often. And the word just kind of died off. Which brings me to page eight. These are some practical helps for you 
to apply casuistry. Because if you just know what the word is, that's fun. We learned a new word. Yay. We well, just call it ethical teaching. I don't, I, don't, I don't really, I'm not concerned about what we call it. What I'm concerned about is how are you going to help others? How are you going to apply the Christian truth in your own life? And the biggest thing I can give you is Romans 12.1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. 99% of the decisions you make, bam, 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 bam. You're just doing them, right? Doing them, doing them, doing them, doing them, doing them, doing them. And if your mind is not transformed and you're not reading the truth of God, you're not coming to church, you're not taking in small groups and listening to things on your podcast when you're going for walks, you're not going to be able to apply the truth to your life. That is the number one thing and the number one way you can apply casuistry in your own life. Read the word. Get involved with the word. Study the word. Shape your mind constantly around the things of God. Give ear and give attention. And the second thing is what Richard Rogers says, which was a Puritan, exercising watchfulness, practicing meditation, using the Christian armor of Ephesians 6, engaging in prayer, reading scripture and godly authors, offering thanksgiving, and practicing fasting. He says that is how you apply it in your life. You take what God has given you, you keep going back to the well, which is Christ, and you apply it every day in your life. And as people come to you, you ask God for wisdom. If you have not, ask of God, James 1, 5, and you'll give it to you liberally. Ask God for wisdom. Apply the scripture to your life. And constantly, study reports are good. You have elders that, that, that will help you. There's men and women here who have been through years and years and years of Christian life who also have a lot of wisdom, who they don't know the word probably, but they've been practicing casteristry for a long time. <laughs> so go to them and get help. Uh, is there any questions? Because we have to end. It is time. Yes, sir. Yes. Yeah, it could be used wrongly also. Ask, I think, 22 people in, in Salem, in Massachusetts. Let's pray.